This final further peril of Laurel and Hardy concerns the struggle between capital and labor. Stan is labor, the loyal butler of Hardy House, whose work is never done. Oliver is capital, the fun-loving millionaire master of the mansion, carrying just enough champagne to make his nose tickle. Hello, hello. Hot on the heels of episode 20, we're back with the next installment of the Laurel and Hardy blogcast. I'm Patrick Vasey, the author of the Laurel and Hardy blog, and also the forthcoming book, Laurel and Hardy Silence, and I'm so glad you've joined me again. Today's show, episode 21, is the continuation of our look at Stan and Babe's 1928 short, Early to Bed. You may recall last time I spoke with Laurel and Hardy expert Randy Scretvet about this most divisive of films, and as Randy explained, he's not the greatest fan of it. And so, to provide some balance to our coverage of the film, today I'm speaking with someone who does like Early to Bed. That someone is film historian, author and expert on the Hal Roach Studios and returning guest, Richard W. Ban. So that's what's coming up uh, in a moment or two. Uh, first, I'd like to say a thank you to all of you who've sent me so many positive messages recently, um, and special thanks to my Italian listeners once again, as the Laurel and Hardy blogcast reached number two in the Film History Podcast charts in Italy for the second time. So, grazie a tutti! Um, and also, I also want to say thank you to all of my Belgian listeners, as the blogcast recently reached number two in the Belgian film history charts. So, merci tout le monde. And finally, I wanted to take this opportunity to promote a forthcoming event. Now, obviously, this is very time-specific, so my apologies if you're listening to this after the event. Um, but as I've mentioned many times uh, on the blogcast, uh, as a fan of Laurel and Hardy, if you ever get the chance to watch the boys on the big screen with a respectful audience, you should jump at it. Well, just such an event is taking place on the 19th of March 2022 at the Rec Cinema in Elland, West Yorkshire in the UK, obviously. Um, the cinema will be showing four Laurel and Hardy films, Sons of the Desert, That's My Wife, Come Clean and Helpmates, with live musical accompaniment for That's My Wife by a loyal friend of the broadcast, Ben Hinchliffe. Uh, the event starts at 7.30 till 10 o'clock, as I said, on the 19th of March, 22, um, and it costs just £5.50 for admission. You can book online at www.nm-cinemas.co.uk. And thank you, Ben, for sending me an invite to what promises to be a fabulous evening. Uh, and all being well, I am hoping to attend, so it would be great to see a packed cinema for this tribute to the boys, and hopefully to have the uh, the chance to meet some of you, maybe. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like any more information on any of that. Uh, and that's it for our little preamble this time. There's no audio blog um, on this show, as we covered early to bed in the last programme, so we'll get straight to our discussion with Richard. <laughs> Joining me now to discuss Early to Bed is one of the world's leading authorities on Laurel and Hardy and of Hal Roach Studios, and he's also the co-author of The Little Rascals, The Life and Times of Our Gang with Leonard Moulton. So it is my very great pleasure to offer a Laurel and Hardy handshake and say welcome back to the broadcast, Richard Ban. Thank you, Patrick. Glad to be here. 
Wonderful to have you again, sir. And I'm, I'm really pleased that you've joined us for this episode, uh, Richard, because um, I spoke with uh, with Randy just last night. Uh, we talked about early to bed, and he he's of the same opinion of early to bed as I am. We, we, we don't both care for it that much. And I think that is more to do with the kind of the baggage that we bring with us uh, rather than any fault of the film itself. Um, so I think if we can get past that, we'll be all right. But uh, but I, I wanted to try and give a little bit of balance to the episode because there's no point two guys who don't like a film talking about it for however long it, it needs to have balance and i know that you are a fan of early to bed and that's so that's that's fantastic so if you could i, I don't want to say i want you to help me to enjoy it more but if you can help me to appreciate it more that would be great so i'm really interested to hear what you've got to say on this film richard well i'll try but uh before we get seriously into early to bed i have three housekeeping notes uh, following up on our conversation covering their purple moment, were you able to find and screen the 1933 Charlie Chase two-reeler with Jimmy Finlayson, but without his mustache, plus um, Anita Garvin and Muriel Evans in that cast? I haven't. I've got to say, I've been a bit tardy on I haven't managed to get around to doing that at all yet. It is on the list still of things to do and watch. So, okay. no, I have okay. slapped my wrist on that one. Okay. <laughs> so, second... And, and you can ask Randy Scratfett, who, who might agree with me, that, that they were the second funniest comedy team ever assembled anywhere in, in any media. Have you now discovered Bob and Ray, the two and only Bob and Ray, who were big Laurel and Hardy fans themselves, and they used to come to the early Sons of the Desert banquets in New York every year? I knew you were going to ask me this. Yes, I, I have. I, I have sampled Bob and Ray, um, and I, I couldn't take them immediately. I've got to say, I, I probably need to give them another try. Um, I went on to YouTube, found them very easily, um, and I don't know. I'm, 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 a, I'm a bit of a funny stick, Richard, because I'm, I'm not very tolerant of things that I don't like, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but I'm, it takes me a while to get into new things. Um, so. Yeah, they didn't leap out at me. I don't know. I don't know why. I just wasn't grabbed. Maybe I maybe I listened to a, a poor uh, a poor show. I don't know. But um, if you could if you could recommend this is like really good sample of them or an example, you know, then maybe maybe I could try it again. But it didn't. It just didn't grab me this time. And I thought I don't want to have to tell him this. Maybe he won't ask me. <laughs> I guess I know you were so positive that I was going to love it. Well, I I can only say. Keep trying. There, there isn't one particular episode or one particular thing I, I would direct you to. But what you just said to me, um, I can I can relate to that, and and I have a story to tell you. Uh, the Motion Picture Academy has a theater that I can walk to here, and every year they do what they call the Jack Oakey Comedy Lecture, and one year. My, my friend Leonard Malton was the guest and his show, his program was movie comedy teams. And he, he gave an, an introduction and then he started running one excerpt after another to sample all the great comedy teams. And he saved until the end what he thought would be the grand finale, the apotheosis of movie comedy teams and he was going to run this particular film, a two-reeler, in its entirety, as opposed to just running film excerpts. Now, he was at the podium in front of this beautiful, I mean, this is the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Science Theater. And I was sitting way in the back, and it was a packed house. And, and 
of course, Leonard had had written a book called Movie Comedy Team. So he has a lot of expertise in this area. And the film that he chose and the comedy team that he chose was Clark and McCullough in Odor in the Court. He and I both have 16 millimeter prints of that. We both love this film. And we stat, sat and, and watched this film in stony silence. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Nobody laughed at a single thing except Leonard at the front of the theater and me in the back. <laughs> everyone else. And so what I learned from this is you have to first, if you don't know uh, Clark and McCullough, or you don't know Bob and Ray, you first have to decide who they are and if you like them before you will laugh at them. I mean, I, I, I agree with him. This may well be the funniest two-reeler ever made by anyone ever at any time. And it died. It absolutely died. And we were <laughs> both stunned. So he and I have been telling this story forever. So I would say, keep trying. I'll I will keep trying. I will keep trying. Okay. I will. Third third question, and I I heard part of your podcast with Glenn Mitchell on Should Married Men Go Home. You seem puzzled about Viola Richards' appearance in Tit for Tat. Oh yes, yes, yes. If you, oh, do tell. If you turn to the entry on that film in our Laurel and Hardy book, you will see a three shot with Laurel and Hardy greeting her specifically as she alone walks by their store, except she's not identified in the caption. And so I need to explain why with the story behind this book. Okay, okay. Uh, Though we'd been corresponding for a while and and talking on the phone, I I first met my collaborators in in person on, on that project, Jack McCabe and Al Kilgore, at the annual Sons of the Desert Banquet in New York during the late 1960s. Uh, The three of us um, also met Richard Feiner and Herb Gelbspan of Hal Roach Studios there too. And uh, we staged these festive banquets every June at the prestigious Lambs Club, uh, which was a home for for actors near, near Times Square. And Feiner had just negotiated two licenses with Herb of Hal Roach Studios, one for domestic only TV rights on the silent Laurel and Hardys and one for merchandising rights. And to exploit the merchandising rights, Feiner was given access to all the Roach Studio nitrate still megs, which was how I got a set of everything. Right. Um, and, And it was Al Kilgore. Al suggested an idea he knew from either the old Life or Look magazine, I forget which it was, uh, where they would they would take a complete story, and and they would tell some they would tell uh, the the complete story of some new movie that had just come out using only still photos from the film. So that became the format for our book. And the idea was for Al to handle the stills, Jack would write the captions, and I would do the filmography, which established what was then the numbered canon of 105, at the time, 105 Laurel and Hardy films. As it turned yeah. out, though, I wound up working in all three areas. I had to supply stills we needed coverage on that Herb could not supply. Plus, I also had to write a lot of the text and for, well, for for two reasons. Jack had left New York and gone back to Mackinac Island in Michigan where they shot uh, somewhere in time with Christopher Reeve and 
Oh, yeah. Jane Seymour, and where Jack had no access to the films there, and he really didn't know the films anyway, because Jack McCabe's interest in Laurel and Hardy was the performance art. He, he taught theater at, at NYU. He, he was the chairman of the theater arts department at NYU when he met Laurel and Hardy. Okay. So, uh, of course, Jack would then take my text and rewrite it in his own unique style. No one could, I mean, Jack's style is very distinctive, as you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so Jack was, was, was in Michigan, Al in New York, and, and I was in Iowa working at uh, Blackhawk Film. So we were doing this, doing this book the hard way. I, I never saw the layout in advance of publication, so I did not know we were using the Viola Richards still because I knew who it was. Oh, okay. right. I, I, I recognized her and I talked to Hal Roach about the still. Um, and, and since neither Jack nor Al knew that was her in the still, it was not reflected in the caption. So there's the explanation. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. Cause that, oh. So she's obviously, she's, she's obviously quite prominent then. So you, so I, I can see from my computer screen, you've got the book out in front of you. <laughs> yes, I'm just quickly thumbing through for the page. I have to see this now. It's been bugging me for so long. Okay, Let me just get to the... have you found it? And there's no... Well, do you know what? I would, I would never have said that was her. I, couldn't, I can't believe that. That's her. Well, well, well. And, and So is that actually a scene in the film, or is that just from a still? That's a still that they pose because she was so special. Gotcha. Um, now, if you look carefully at her costume... And you then look at the DVD, or maybe we'll have a Blu-ray soon. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> you can match up that costume to uh, what you see in the DVD, yeah. and you can find her, although it's not easy. Yeah, and of course, this is what nearly ten years yeah. since we've seen her on film, so of course she's going to look slightly different. <clears throat> Well, thank you for that, Richard. That's that is yeah. That's that's uh, solved. I can put a, a stamp on that. Okay, now. it's done. Brilliant. <laughs> I've never been in a position like that before. <laughs> but it's certainly a pleasure to have seen you again. Early to bed, uh, a little late. Uh, we we love the open. Right away, the one quiet exterior scene in the park. Right away, you're disarmed by gags with little Buster the dog. The boys are down and out, and uh, you're pulling for them. So. Good start. Yeah. And, and then at yeah. the end, the climax with the water fountain, everyone acknowledges how good that is. And you have to marvel at the precise timing of, of the gags there. And, and yet no one except maybe Charles Barr is ever going to select early to better as, as his or her favorite Laurel and Hardy comedy. But I've always enjoyed this short as a, as a change of pace for its experimentation, the variation on their uh, usual comedy constructs, and, and I can't understand why so many fans do not share this this view. Now, I'm not making anyone wrong for disliking the film. It's not a debate. Is 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 there going to be a fight? As they say in Blockheads, no. Uh, th- these are our personal subjective opinions that we're all entitled to. I just don't understand them. So, yeah. is it? I wonder. Is is it that fans? think that Hardy is mistreating Laurel or is it that Hardy is simply inebriated and and we need to recognize that we don't behave the same when we've been overserved you know so so he's <laughs> he, he's he's inebriated he's he's happy and yeah. just wants to play innocent fun is how i see it after all they're they're two grown up kids is is all 
uh, as Hal Roach always explained, the key to their comedy was displaying the innocence of, of children. And besides, by the end, Laurel sure does get even with Hardy, the, the much bigger uh, Hardy. Now, my own criticism of Early to Bed, or, or at least I might like it better, is if there were more outdoor locations. And a big, yeah. a big part of old films uh, and, and old never being a pejorative for me is the time travel aspect. I, I, yeah. I want to be transported back to the 1920s. Yeah. So location shooting uh, helps do that for you. You you can see and visit this inviting and remote world now virtually gone, as mm. as Chris Bungo's then and now videos demonstrate so dramatically. Yeah. You can, I mean, I drive through these locations all the time, every week going to the Culver City Hotel. You can't find what you want to see even though you're driving right through the area where these films were shot, yeah. you can't find this except in those films. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I, I'm reminded uh, talking about his tribute film to, and called Manhattan, Woody Allen once said, and only half kidding. I've got the quote here. Uh, Years from now, people will be able to look back at my films and the only real value of them is going to be the background scenery, end quote. That's what Woody Allen <laughs> said. Brilliant, yeah. So, Brilliant. And, and maybe, maybe we'd all like early to bed better if the picture looked better. Print quality is not sparkling here. The, the best surviving preprint material and, and the element from which all copies for all media have been sourced for viewing all throughout the sound films era uh, down through today has been the, the one lowest generation extent 35 millimeter nitrate element, which was um, an indifferently made 35 millimeter dupe negative derived from a lavender or, or, or a fine grain master that was struck at some point and from the export or second and lesser camera neg with flash titles. Now we, we did our nitrate conversion and preservation on early to bed and I, I, I got out my early to bed file. This was in 1993. And winding through the, the nitrate uh, at, at that time, I, I saw that Duke Neg was on so-called no-name stock with no edge code, so we can't date it. Um, maybe today in the digital age with a 4K transfer and state-of-the-art digital wizardry, um, they might be able to brighten the appearance of this film, although I, I don't know what the current condition of that nitrate dubnake is at the, the, this point. I, I haven't handled it since 1993. I, I'm, what I'm talking about insofar as the de decomposition. In any case, um, the, the technology for a 4K scan was, was neither available to us nor affordable. What was it? Uh, almost 30, 30 years ago now. Back then, no one was digitizing library content, and our it, it was really our analog restoration and preservation for this title was exclusively on the uh, photochemical side, meaning physical 35 millimeter film, physical film, not not video. And um, this short takes place mostly at night, specifically 3 a.m. A title card tells us, 
And right away, you think of a similarly well-dressed and inebriated Charlie Chaplin in his classic two-reel comedy, What I Am for Mutual. So it's supposed to be dark and, and look dark, I guess, and maybe in more ways than one. But I, I think it's more a case of the soft-looking dupeneg having been printed a few points too heavy. So that doesn't help me. Now, there's also some distracting nominal nitrate decomp and damage at the tail of reel one and the start of reel two. So we view the film today at a slight disadvantage and e even more so when you consider that with the, the second to export alternate camera neg, we're getting the second best camera angles to view. Right, of course, and, yeah. And, 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 and too bad the, the film has never been fitted with a powerful Wurlitzer organ score, which is always a huge plus. That's what I always want to hear on any silent film. And during the Black gotcha. Hawk film days, I always lobbied to, for us to hire John Murray to perform Wurlitzer organ tracks for our new silent film releases. Now today, Early to Bed is available to see from several sources, but um, after we talked last time, I only screened my 16 millimeter Blackhawk films print. And there, and maybe elsewhere, other media sources, there is evidence of some slight tampering, which um, you probably know about, which I, I never like to find. I always, I always want to see exactly what movie patrons saw in first yeah. houses during early play dates. And in the scene where Hardy comes home, he tells Laurel, Tonight I met the most gorgeous creature in the world. And she has a maid, a beautiful maid. Then, then there's a straight cut to a, a beaming stand and then back to Babe, which is how they refer to him in the script and the cutting continuity. And Babe crushes Stan by telling him, but she's Chinese. Now in, in my Blackhawk print, that title card, which had been written originally, of course, by our Mr. Walker, reads instead, but she's married. And doubtless my one-time boss at Blackhawk Films, Kent D. Easton, was the party responsible for altering that inner title, but I don't like to see that. Right. Well, it, it, the, the original one is on the, the UK um, DVD. I know that because I was quite uh, taken aback by the thought that wouldn't be allowed today. <laughs> right, it, it wouldn't. Um, so now I have a stills folder on early to bed and and the studio issued 32 still photos i have okay. them all and curiously there isn't a single still shot showing the water fountain with the gargoyles at the end yeah i thought that yeah i've been looking through the stills that i've um i've got as well yeah not a single which is amazing because that is such such a yeah. trademark guy isn't it yeah, Amazing. i mean no coverage for the film's memorable climactic sequence. I, I have yeah. no idea why. Where was Stax Graves that day? I We don't know. But um, very curious. Because do we think that was McCary's reshoots, that end, that end gag? Because he came back, didn't he, for three, three days of reshoots at the end of the filming um, after Emmett Flynn had um, exited that, stage left. That, that I don't know. I can't say. But even so. Uh, if, if there were retakes, nevertheless, the question remains, where was Stax Gray? Where was he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I've also got a production folder with documents and clippings and correspondence notes, etc., which I, I keep on all Hal Roach films. I, I really don't have any special background production information on early to bed, unless it were to be found 
in the many boxes of unfiled paperwork and treasures um, taking up spaces. But one thing I found, however, I wonder if anyone else has noticed that Mr. Hardy's two large pajamas were passed along to Patsy Kelly seven years later for her two-wheeler with Thelma Todd called Top Flat. Not Top Hat, but Top Flat. (laughs) There's a terrific, out-of-character, early-to-bed still, and it's posed, not candid, it's posed, where Hardy is showing Laurel both beaming big smiles, showing Laurel how gigantic his oversized PJs are. (laughs) It's a lovely shot, that is. It's a really nice shot. Because we use that still in, in our Laurel and Hardy book. Now, yeah. a- according to um, to Lois Laurel, when she first explained this to me, and it made a lot of things clear about her father, she told me that probably because of her father's undiagnosed diabetes at the time, that was the reason during the mid-30s for Mr. Laurel causing so much trouble at the studio for everyone. And Mr. Roach was prepared to cut all ties with him. Well, that it, it was during this time when we know they announced and wrote a script, which I have for a new series to be called The Hardys. And Oliver mm-hmm. Hardy and his wife-to-be, the same Patsy Kelly, would be parents of my now much-missed pal Spanky McFarlane, who was born the week early to bed was issued to movie theaters in October of 1928. Oh, I like yeah. finding those tie-ins. Yeah, that's lovely. Now, something else, and I believe this is correct. If I'm not, I'll hear about it, but I think it is. Without, without <laughs> checking, see if I'm not correct. Decorating the walls in Mr. Hardy's new mansion in Early to Bed is the frame prop painting of Blue Boy. Yes, yes. Oh, so you've seen it. Yeah, it's in the doorway, is it, when they walk, when they walk in, exactly. right behind exactly. the stand. Yeah. It's not there yeah. long. If you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. But so this was this was used again as the key plot point in Wrong Again. And yeah. and the mansion interior also was redressed to serve as Del Henderson's residence in that same film only a few months later. So there are two I did wonder, yeah. Wrong again. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. And the Blue Boy painting was wrecked at the end of the film. So it could not have been used a third time as um art decorating the set in the fixer uppers has has been claimed by in, in certain quarters the p- well funny i asked randy that last night because i spotted it. i thought oh is that the blue boy but you're right of course it did get wrecked, it got yeah, wrecked. It got the, wrecked. The, the painting in question is similar probably yeah. done by the same artist at the studio whoever that was but it's of patsy kelly patsy you see patsy kelly's Clearly, the model for what you see in the fiction. Oh, right. Does he really? <laughs> I didn't know that. <clears throat> so then we we have to address this. You you mentioned it before, and frankly, I don't know what to make of the fact that Emma J. Flynn directed this short. It it it, it doesn't figure. Hmm. He made important dramatic pictures in all the genres at <clears throat> major studios around town with big stars, uh, John Gilbert, Doug Fairbanks, Mary Miles Minner, and, and I think Flynn. Uh, married her sister, um, but he didn't direct comedies, at least as as I remember, much less short comedies. So, so yeah. how I should like to know, in the words of your country's Jackie Lynn, how I should like to know, how <laughs> did he land at the lot of fun to make a, a comedy two-reeler? Of yeah. course, many Laurel and Hardy fans don't think Early to Bed is a comedy. Maybe you don't, I, or, or, or much of a comedy. Anyway, such a such a curious choice. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Kevin Brownlow tells me, because I just asked him, that Flynn was friends with three other key filmmakers with Irish heritage. And right. Kevin, as you may, may know, he is proud to say that he's half Irish. My, my heritage is, is 100% Irish. Um, so, but the three other uh, 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 filmmakers, the two that I remember he told me were, were Hal Roach and John Ford. So right. Roach and Flynn were, and were also ex-truck drivers, so they have something else in common. Oh, wow. Okay. But we, we know Flynn was a terrible alcoholic since yet another Irish dire director of Irish descent, Leo McCary, had a drinking problem, too. So I wonder if that was the connection and Emmett Flynn's ticket for this one-off, which is just a pure guess, as is why he failed to stick, because this was the only film he made at the studio, as far as I can remember. Yeah. Yeah, and from what I've what I've found um, just trawling through the trade papers, he he was supposed to be there for the series. It wasn't just a, it wasn't supposed to be a one off. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and um, I found the really interesting. In fact, there was two. There was two um, in Motion Picture News, sixteenth of June, nineteen twenty eight. There's just a very brief article entitled "Roach Studio Staff for New Season Complete," and that attached Flynn's name to the directorial team on Laurel and Hardy, Charlie Chase, and Max Davidson comedies. Really? Well, um, and and then going on from that, there was a, uh, a an article in Picture Play magazine i read this to randy yesterday he hadn't seen it um may 1928 um and it's uh, it was basically it, this this talks more about flynn's character um and it was saying um a few years ago emmett flynn was one of the foremost directors in hollywood having made a reputation with the connecticut yankee and king arthur's court and his brother ray flynn was his assistant emmett quickly won the reputation of being upstage and hard to get along with though his brother was contrastingly obliging and agreeable. Consequently, it has afforded some satisfaction to a good many of their associates to witness the parallel careers of the brothers Flynn. Emmett, since his last contract expired, has not worked in many months. His brother, meanwhile, by industry and application, has become a director and is said to be advancing rapidly. Incidentally, he is a director of Fox Pictures, the same organisation which failed to renew his big brother's last contract. Very interesting, and I did not know that. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have told you something, Richard. That's a that's a first. Well, well, <laughs> um, yeah, that's escaped my my attention. But I, I would say, in response to to that, that they they planned a long term association. Uh, maybe Mr. Roach, at the end of his worldwide tour during production, thought of a film like this when he finally saw it violated the unit playbook or the the bible mm. for laurel and hardy that they were yeah. developing for their characters but again i can't ever remember talking to him about early to bed uh yeah. maybe it was uh simply a, a case where uh none of the studio staff directors was available and they they had to reach out to to somebody to to fill that void, I don't know. In, in any case, I, I think Flynn didn't even finish the picture, right? Because as we touched on already, Leo McCary had to step in for three days of, of retakes. And, yeah. and thereafter, as we know, uh, Flynn's life just spiraled out of control. Uh, divorces, alimony troubles. He landed in jail. He escaped from jail. Uh, wound up at San Quentin and mm. died of alcoholism at 44. The actress yeah. Bessie Love, this is what Kevin told me, 
Uh, Bessie Love said he was, quote, mental at the end. So what a story this is. Uh, Would you believe this in a poverty row B film script? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. It's true. So, so, um, and and this wouldn't be the last time the studio tried to rescue an important director from his uh, declination as, as, a, as a consequence of either alcohol or losing his touch. Marshall Nealon and D.W. Griffith are two more uh, sad examples uh, that, that come to mind. And it, it was this kind of value investing, yeah. what it is, value investing, trying to bring someone back. Uh, which explains in part why Roach tried to resurrect the career of of Fred Carno, as I said recently to his fine biographer David Crump. Yet, yeah. yet, yet another two of your countrymen, Patrick. Uh, yes, we keep cropping up, don't we? Yes, uh, yes. and and <laughs> there'll be more going going there'll forward be more. here. Now back back to McCary for a moment. With with Hal Roach still on that worldwide tour <laughs> to save his marriage. It was McCary who was responsible for the story on Early to Bed. And in our conversation Ah. covering their purple moment, Patrick, I mentioned that while the paperwork for the copyright registrations on most of the studio's films do credit Hal Roach's author on their purple moment and Early to Bed, he wasn't around when the story was conceived. So so in fact, the certification affidavit document on file at the Library of Congress states that the author of the story for Early to Bed was... Leo McCary. Right. And, and you wonder if McCary had just been treated to a reissue exhibition of, as mentioned, one of the great Chaplin Mutuals, 1 a.m., which could have served as his inspiration here. So we, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Yeah. And that's another film that I don't find very funny. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. It's not it's, it's not my favorite, but it's one of the no. one of the vaunted Chaplin mutuals. Yeah. Now I think I know what Randy Scratfett's main objection is on this picture, <clears throat> that Mr. Okay. Laurel, rather than Mr. Hardy, should have inherited the fortune of money and, and for reasons I can see and do not uh, object to. I, I can well understand Randy's point. At the same mm. time, however, I would think it might be perilous to second-guess a top comedy talent like Leo McCary. So I wonder how he would defend the choice he made here as to which one, Mr. Laurel or Mr. Hardy, should be the the beneficiary. What would he say? Maybe he didn't believe that Laurel could have enacted the role that Hardy performs so well, so convincingly. After all, who's the superior actor? Clearly, it's no contest ever. It was always Mr. Hardy. So I'd be hard-pressed to bet against Mr. McCary for, as we know, his comedy judgment was pretty sound, pretty sound. Yeah. I think, I mean, just speaking with Randy yesterday, you know, we both agreed that the the performances are absolutely fabulous. You know, they both knock it out of the park without a question. Uh, You know, Babe is is fantastic in in what he does. Um, I think, in fact, it's it's strange. Both our objections, not objections to it, but the reason that we feel so negative towards it is more to do with our own kind of um, backgrounds in terms of alcohol, uh, Randy said when he was 12, his father um, had alcohol issues. So at weekends, Friday and Saturday, I think he said, um, he would, you know, he wouldn't leave the house because he didn't want to leave his mom alone with an alcoholic father. So he has this kind of reaction to to that kind of 
um, abuse of of um, somebody you know in the in the household or whatever by he didn't say he didn't say that uh, his father was abusive at all but you know it's that kind of reaction and and on a similar theme for me um i i've always been teetotal i've never drunk but my friends did whenever we would go out so i was kind of surrounded by drunk people and i i just I can't stand it you know i just it, i it, i just react to it so i think we bring our own baggage to to that film so it's not the film's fault per se um but what what i what i don't like and i, I agree with you you know it it is to you know a babe is is drunk and he's just trying to have a good time the only part that that differs uh, for me is the part just after he, he he comes in on stan in the bed and tips the water uh, in in the bed and wakes him up um, and Stan says, like, I've had enough. I'm leaving in the morning. And Babe's countenance, he just, he just changes immediately. And he's quite kind of malicious. He says, no way. I'm not letting you leave. <laughs> that bit that bit isn't fun. You know, he's not being funny there. He's not having a laugh. He just changes. Um, and I can't, I just can't get to grips with that. And interestingly, Youngson uh, left that part out. Uh, I guess, I don't know whether he thought that wasn't funny either. I don't know. But um, I prefer the Youngson edit in uh, Further Perils, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That is funny, because there are some great gags in it. Uh, there are some really funny moments in it, um, and I think you just need to edit out the bits that aren't Laurel and Hardy, in inverted commas, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, that had not occurred to me, that someone who had an averse reaction to seeing someone consume alcohol because they have personal a personal mm. connection to bad uh, alcoholic behavior uh, that hadn't occurred to me. So that's that's not a consideration that would would have bothered me, but I I, I respect that, that, that position. Yeah, I think, and because when I remember when I first wrote about early to bed, um, and I've rewritten the whole thing now, but initially, I I did consider that. I thought, I wonder if this is just because of my own feelings towards people, you know, people's personalities changing because of alcohol. And I thought, well, to be honest, I love Arthur Hausman. I I can't get enough of Arthur. I think he's brilliant. So it's not it's not that. I think it's the it's the kind of the abusive um, part of it. It's when it turns and it's not actually funny. It's it, it's consistently and persistently, um, you know, uh, it just goes beyond the pale, let's say. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, I take your point, but I would say I wouldn't want to bet against uh, Leo McCary. Uh, no. Or, 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 the, or the comedy instincts of, of, of Stan Laurel, too, uh, who, uh, <clears throat> of course... Uh, as we also know, had a subtle way of, of directing his directors and, and bossing the set on most Laurel and Hardy pictures, except according to those studio alumni I, I talked with, and, and in particular, Hal Roach, except when Mr. McCary was sitting in that director's chair or near it or behind it, as on right. early to bed. But maybe Mr. Laurel agreed with Mr. McCary's decision and would not have interposed any objection anyway, but I guess um, we'll never know. Uh, mm. and, and I want to mention one more thought about those retakes. Uh, we, we know Hal Roach returned to the studio near the, the end of May, right? So uh, he, he may have been the one to order those retakes McCary shot in June. Roach, yeah. Roach wasn't a particularly good director, in part because with so much to do, he could never totally focus on that uh, on that task but i know from personal experience on films that he and i saw together from and and also from what studio alumni told me that he could deconstruct 
any film he'd see. That's what he did every day viewing the Russians. That's how those films were made to his satisfaction. If he wasn't happy with something, it was changed, altered, fixed until he liked it. So, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the following the, the rushes or, 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 or the previews, he was the, the studio film doctor, you know, someone with, yeah. with, a, with a powerful, perceptive, cognitive system. He could always see what worked, what didn't, why and how to fix it. And I know Harold Lloyd, for one, has offered powerful testimony on that. And um, as an aside, well, I, I said this the last time we spoke about how left-handers see the, the world differently. Maybe that yeah. a lot about Hal Roach's cognitive power, or maybe he was just far more perceptive than, than anyone else. I mean, I, I, I can remember, I, I might be doing something with him. Uh, we'd be experiencing the same thing right, right in front of our eyes. It didn't have to be a film. And he would discern and detect things that I missed to the point where time and again, you'd be saying to yourself, why didn't I see that or, 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 or figure that? Uh, now, now, something else I want to cover. To my memory, the only Hal Roach Studios alumni I ever spoke to about early to bed was a, a man named Bob Davis, which I had forgotten about until I saw these notes in the production folder I keep um, for early to bed. And I'm glad I'm did. I, I did. I, I think you'll find this interesting. I, I hope you will. Will you'll tell me if you do or not? Right? Yes. I was. Yes. You can rely on me. Okay. So Bob. Bob Davis was at the studio forever. He worked in the transportation department, which included uh, chauffeuring duties and sometimes driving cars or trucks for scenes in the picture. So he's in these films. Okay. Uh, Mickey Daniels' brother, Leonard, also a kid actor, though not with our game, was one of the people who reported to Bob Davis at the studio after Bob took over the transportation department, succeeding a man named Jack Burns, which is a name you see on a storefront facade in the back lot during so many films, so many films, where it reads on the display window that you see in so many pictures, right. J.W. Burns, everything for the golfer. Yeah. That's how I recall it read. So you can guess his hobby. So now that you're aware of this, you'll start seeing yeah. that, that, that storefront and the window, J.W. Burns, everything for the golfer. Anyway, so, <laughs> and, and also... Um, there's, there's a, a, a letter shown as a full screen insert that promotes Spanky McFarlane's father as the new, I, I know this because I just saw this film, uh, as the new head of uh, shipping clerks or clucks, as, as Spanky says. And it's signed J.W. Burns in one of the great Our Gang comedies called Bedtime Worries. So anyway, Bob Davis would give you two business cards and I saved them. One read. Hal Roach Studios Transportation with both his residence phone number, I've got it right here, and his number at the studio, his phone number. Now, he told me he was on call 24-7 and sometimes to drive home studio talent who had been overserved at bars or parties just like <laughs> Mr. Hardy in early to bed. Right. And this was during Prohibition, no less. So Bob said he did a lot of that kind of driving because there were a lot of studio staffers who who enjoyed a mood-altering beverage right? or more. 
<clears throat> now, the other business card had his name in the middle and the word retired beneath. Then he had four two-word declarations in each corner. In other words, retired in the middle, and the four corners would read no address in one corner, no phone, no business, no money in the last corner. <laughs> Bob was someone yeah. who saved a lot of artifacts from the studio, and after the bankruptcy, he started gifting other grads from a lot of fun with the memorabilia that he oh, wow. he gave many awesome. things especially photographs to Hal Roach who didn't really care about them but Hal's <laughs> wife Lucille did care and did want them and gratefully accepted them as gifts because oh. Hal never saved any of this stuff it didn't yeah. it, was, it meant nothing to him now the way I met Bob Davis um, well his three wives were all named Retta. That was her name, Retta. Each one. His first wife, Retta Palmer, was a dress extra in scores of films made at the studio. If you were lucky enough to get a, get a hold of a still she's in that she had owned, like the one Bob showed me from the Who Scout, this lady, <laughs> you've never heard anything like this. This lady would draw eyelashes on her own picture. <laughs> <laughs> so, so right away uh, you saw her right away in those shots so uh, ridiculous but that's what she would do and i have copies of some of these stills i mean it was our gang's joe cobb who put me in touch with bob davis because for half a century they lived close to one another on clarington avenue in culver city that's the street laura hardy are supposed to live on in sons of the desert and you remember, you remember that scene where the cab drives up. You can see a, and, and you can see a photo. I mean, if you want to, of of Bob Davis standing next to Joe Cobb in the bio section of the Our Gang book. And I, and I know Bob Satterfield was another one, maybe the only other one who uh, met Bob Davis. And and he has a great photo showing Bob with Mr. and Mrs. Hal Roach and Lois Laurel at a Way Out West banquet, all, all looking happy in, in, in a great shot. So I was corresponding with Bob Davis when in 1972, long before you were born, Patrick, he, 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 he advised he was going to visit the Twin Cities where I lived at the time in Minnesota because his third wife, they're all named Retta, was from there. So... I arranged for Bob to appear on the local Laurel and Hardy WCCO TV show where I was contributing material to promote our Blockheads 10, Oasis number three. And Bob, wanting to introduce his new wife to Laurel and Hardy, had just seen the Youngson compilation, which featured an extensive excerpt from Early to Bed, which was, of course, the further perils of Laurel and Hardy. But, so I found these notes I made following our get-together that day in my early-to-bed production folder. Now, as people, this is, this is of interest, at least to me, Bob said he much preferred Stan Laurel to Babe Hardy, saying that Stan was always full of fun, laughing, totally accessible, uh, that, that Stan was someone who was everyone's friend at the studio how he was always putting, putting his arm around everyone he'd see. He'd meet someone, put his arm around him. Whereas Babe Hardy was the opposite. He was quiet, 
reserved, mm. a little standoffish, and Bob used the word snotty at Oh. Now, that's not a very nice characterization to hang on. Something, no. But that, no. that's the word he used, snotty. And I guess Bob's reaction to Hardy was similar to, to the way Lucille Hardy perceived and, and sized up her future husband when, when she first met him, mistaking, yeah. mistaking his uh, dignified reserve for a, a lack of warmth. Aloofness, yes, yes. yes. And, I, and I, I suppose it was the same way for... Uh, Felix Knight, when he encountered and did not care for Babe Hardy while shooting Babes in Toyland. So, right. so, so, so Bob Davis told me that he, he knew Hardy had a troubled marriage to an alcoholic and that consequently he had an ongoing affair with Hal Roach's sister-in-law, Henrietta Nichols, who was a cutter at the studio. Now, I'd forgotten this, I guess because no one ever... And no one else that I know had ever revealed or or commented on it. Now we know, mm. we know about Oliver Hardy's relationship with uh, Viola Morris as the yeah. um, mistress that he would go back to through the years, but I can't recall any other studio grads connecting him with Henrietta Nichols, who was the sister of Margaret Roach. Um, now both Dick Courier and Hal Roach had to know about this because she worked in the editing department, but I, I have no memory of ever discussing it with, with either, either of them. Anyway, <clears throat> so Bob was not Babe Hardy's biggest fan, but he said he enjoyed early to bed because Hardy was so surprisingly exuberant there. It, su it surprised him to see these scenes, the, the scenes he saw in the further perils of Laurel and Hardy, the, the, the lively... Uh, you have Hardy showing a lot of personality, and, and, and Bob said that sense of fun was contagious and made him feel good about the film. So that Hardy he liked, but it was not something one would have uh, observed on any Laurel and Hardy set, according to Bob, but, but between scenes. So Bob enjoyed the film because of Mr. Hardy's performance. So off screen, as I said, Bob much preferred the company of the more outgoing, fun-loving Mr. Laurel with his pranks and stunts. Any. <laughs> Any, according to Bob, anyone anywhere could approach Stan Laurel and be greeted warmly. Bob explained. Oh, that's lovely. That's nice. But at the same time, I asked about, because I, I was just discovering all this stuff in the late 60s and early 70s. So I, I asked about any tension between Hal Roach and Stan Laurel, which only didn't was not in evidence on on er, making early to bed this only began much later as you know when they they made babes in toilet and, and yeah and bob concurred with so many others who worked at the studio and loved stan laurel but always sided with their boss over the problems laurel would cause them the, right the moody bouts of temperament the too many wives the walkouts the the lady he wasn't married to stan had a mistress uh, we talked about that last time, the divorces, the bad press that that would cause, yeah. drinking, the drunk driving arrest, the, the pranks and stunts that would go wrong around the, the studio, the loss, mm. et cetera. So, <clears throat> pardon me, starting with the Arbuckle scandal, Roach had, Hal Roach had long promoted a morality code at his studio. This was a serious issue all over Hollywood at the time because 
they had to engage in, in self-censorship or, or who knew what the federal government was going to impose, regulations and trouble for, the, for, for Hollywood. So too often, Stan Laurel's indiscretions angered Hal Roach. Now, the rank and file employees at the studio, these things jeopardized their livelihood. It, yeah. This was the depression, or it wasn't a depression with early to bed, but it soon would be. The jobs were tight. Everything was being cut way back. So uh, in the hierarchy of, of evidentiary standards, I, I mean, case closed. Roach, Roach would always say that, that except for Chaplin, um, there had not, had never been any better gag men in Hollywood than, than Laurel. He always acknowledged that. Everyone around the clock yeah. uh, loved Stan Laurel, praised his artistry, acknowledged how hard he worked. But beginning with Babes in Toyland, they weren't going to side with him versus Hal Roach on any issue at the risk of their careers and their livelihood. Conversely, Bob said of, of Hal Roach, and, and by the way, uh, he used the word sweet. Sweet is not a word I would apply, but Bob did when he said, and I have these notes here, quote about Hal Roach. Oh, he was the sweetest boss I ever had. I used to truck his polo ponies around the country. He was always great with me. Besides his own, I had one of only two keys to Roach's liquor cabinet. Again, liquor. During, <laughs> during prohibition, Tony Campanero had the other one because he made booze at the at the ranch, the Roach Ranchero. Everyone used to come over to my house for parties and get the illegal liquor I made during prohibition. Roach, McCary, Matt O'Brien, Stan Laurel, Sam Lufkin, especially Sam Lufkin, the Murray brothers, and of course Charlie Chase. They were good customers of mine, and you can't imagine the fun we all had during those days. End quote. <laughs> That's great. So in reviewing these notes from half a century ago, so now you're talking to somebody really old. This is this, <laughs> this was half a century ago. They revealed something I had forgotten that Bob Bob explained to me, and I should have remembered it all these years. There are so many interviews you find where Hal Roach praises Laurel's gifts as a gagman, as I just said, but he complains about his ability to develop basic stories as film scenarios, characterizing them as impractical and even childish. Now, Bob Davis offered a distinction I had forgotten. It was feature films that Roach was talking about, limitations on stories for feature films, not shorts. That's what okay. forgotten. And Roach, who was seldom careful about things he would say, he just, he just was. He always failed to, to differentiate this. Now, here's the quote from Bob Davis. 
once we had to transition to big feature films to keep the doors open during the depression, Stan never seemed to realize that if you don't have something to show the banker, a solid script they can have confidence in, you don't get the loan, you don't make the picture, and everyone gets sent home, game over. Too many times the thing Stan wanted to do, the bankers would see as silly and a poor risk. We knew all that. End quote. So this isn't in my notes with Bob Davis, but today when I found this, reading what he said, I have to think of the scene in Pack Up Your Troubles where the boys seek a bank loan to be secured by valueless collateral, their quote unquote restaurant business. And is that part of your business as the bank president looking out, the <laughs> looking down the street at a rickety lunch wagon played by a, a, a lot of cats? Part of it, that's all of it, a answers Laurel. So <laughs> one more point on this, on, on some of these big bank loans. It was Hal Roach. I mean, people don't know this. It was Hal Roach personally who put himself on the line to guarantee repayment in the depths of the depression. That's a big deal. Did Stan Laurel or anyone else at the studio ever take on that kind of personal risk to keep everyone there happily employed during the dark days of the Great Depression? No. And another reason that Hal Roach was beloved at his studio. So anyway, <clears throat> as fans, on the matter of story construction, we might offer a rebuttal on behalf of Stan Laurel. And it might be something like, um, maybe you'd say, uh, pure undiluted Laurel and Hardy comedy, such as you find in Blockheads or Pardon Us, the stories such as they are, the stories there constitute far better entertainment for us, for us, than something like Bonnie Scotland especially, or even uh, Swift Smith with, 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 with those boring romantic subplots and side <laughs> stories, you know? But movies, yeah. however, are show business, business being the, the operative word. And, and, I'm far, and I'm far from finished with Early to Bed, but I want to cover this, this stuff that, that Bob Davis's testimony reminded me of because they are the kinds of things that only Hal Roach Studios lifers know. Or, or new. And I hope I can properly explain this because I think it's important. Uh, and, and few understand this point at this late date. But to, to, to stay in business, to meet a payroll in the 1930s, to keep all that talent who depended on the decisions Hal Roach would make, to keep them employed in careers they loved and, and which fed their families during hard times in the 1930s, Hal Roach had to be mindful of and cater to the demands of the bankers, also the wishes of the sales force at Metro, which sold these pictures, and also the feedback from the exhibitors which booked and played the movies. Roach had to listen to all these voices and be responsive to them. These were considerations that Stan Laurel did not have to entertain, and he never did. That wasn't his province. His expertise was performance art, and crafting gags, and there's nobody better at that. Yeah. Whereas Roach had to be mindful of the bigger picture of everything, both the creative side and the business side. So he always had his hand on the pulse of his worldwide audience and how 
his films were financed and sold and reached those audiences and how they were received. When he traveled, he attended movies. He talked to exhibitors. He conferred with the MGM salespeople at the branch offices. And, and let's not forget this. He, he, could, he could safely ignore most of what Louis B. Mayer might say or, 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 or want down the same street on the same Washington Boulevard at MGM, but not Mayer's boss, Nick Skink, who, though he officed in New York with, with Lowe's there, the Metro's parent company, he, Nicholas Skink, was the single most powerful man in Hollywood, even though he was in New York and throughout the entire motion picture industry. Roach had to be responsive to Nick Skink and all these interests and the feedback he got. Now, today, the, does anyone ever consider the constraints on Hal E. Roach during the Great Depression, trying to keep the doors open at, at his studio so that all these people employed there who were depending upon him could feed their families? Think about that. I mean, we, we don't have time to name all the production companies and film studios that folded went out of business and left the scene during the 1930s. You, you look at the um, trade papers, it's, it's scattered with news of these companies disappearing. Now, the, the, the sad truth is that the feedback from all these quarters, from the exhibition uh, and distribution channels, as well as from the bankers and Mr. Skank, was that they wanted and they asked for the kind of Laurel and Hardy feature films that all the fans I know do not care for today. Again, Bond yeah. Scotland being a prime example. It's yeah. never, never, never the case that Hal Roach preferred injecting those romantic subplots or side stories or music-filling footage, but rather that Hal Roach had to be responsive to his banker, as I say, his distributor, his exhibitors, and his audience, which was far wider yeah, far wider than most than 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 the mostly old age men like me, Patrick, like me, who, who primarily make up the world of Laurel and he may prefer blockheads, but the parties pressuring Hal Roach at that time that I've named yes, they wanted more than pure slapstick and features as as opposed to shorts. Yes, and they asked for films like Bonnie Scotland. Hard as that is to understand for the theater going public at that time. Hal Roach Studios was not producing films to suit the far, the, the, the far into the future tastes of middle-aged and old men like me, who today constitute the membership of Sons of the Desert Taint. Worldwide. <laughs> yes. Sorry, this is this is a fact of life. Now, when I was Blackhawk yeah. Films, one day I got called into Ken Easton's office and criticized for catering too much to the serious film people within our customer base, meaning my friends. He told me <laughs> Black Hawk Films would go broke if we allowed that select subset, that select group to dictate policy for the company. And he was right. And I, I learned a lesson. Right. Re remember, <clears throat> when these pictures were being produced as a business in the real world, it was for a wide family audience, dad, moms, yeah. kids, your two kids. It's it's like we see in Charlie Chase's movie night and then also his remake, Neighborhood House. After dinner, the family rushes out to catch a show at some movie theater. 
Oh, which one? Who makes that decision? The man may have been king of his castle back then, uh, but, but he had to abide by the house rule. And you're married, Patrick. Happy wife, <laughs> happy life. Am I right? Uh, I can't possibly comment, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll be in trouble if you say the wrong thing. Look, Absolutely look, right. Look, yes. look at Mr. Hardy in Sons of the Desert as yeah. an example. So, so at least half the time, it was women who picked the kinds of entertainment the family would would, would pay to see. Now, and and they would go by what the feature film was, not the choice. Yeah. Now, you and I talked about how the studio, Hal Roach Studio, was trying to emphasize the importance of advertising those shorts. But that That's isn't right. what the deciding factor was to for a, a, a family's evening entertainment. Yeah. So, so how many women have you seen at sons' meetings through the years lining up to see blockheads or pardon us? I, I've yet to find one. Well, well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but you, you, you get my point. Yeah, I get your point. So, it's a very, it's a point very well made. So, so now, um, you you had to make movies that offered more than seventy or eighty minutes of pure slapstick, or you were asking for trouble. The the pushback you'd get. Yeah. So the to subsist in the nineteen thirties, for example, a studio like Columbia, they didn't have to push the Three Stooges into feature films because Columbia had already succeeded in cranking out a full quota of program features with other stars. They had machinery that made features totally separate from and apart of, from the, the short subjects unit. I mean, the Three Stooges, that unit was, was Jules White was left totally alone. They, they didn't care. That was just filler for their, 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 their block booking program that, 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 that they would sell. Columbia knew that the Three Stooges making features wouldn't work anyway. They, they were best suited for slapstick comedies that complemented features. It was the same for Laurel and Hardy. But Hal Roach Studios was not then set up to manufacture features and did not have the kind of talent suited to carry important feature films. So, yeah. so their, their original business plan was to transition their various branded units uh, they, they did have, because this is all the talent they had, into feature films because the studio could no longer survive producing shorts exclusively by the, by the mid-30s. At, at the same time, MGM did not, it, it did not need features from Hal Roach because they already knew how to make their own quite well. In other words, yeah. Hal Roach Studios faced a lot of obstacles trying to survive. And who kept this all together? Hal E. Now, yeah. now, now yeah. fans today who live too much in the fantasy land of, of old movies, because some do, uh, they don't seem to understand these motion pictures were made under the kinds of real world constraints I'm trying to outline. Yeah. We need to consider and appreciate the operative business model at work in Hollywood a century ago. Hal Roach didn't want to take Laurel and Hardy out of shorts to, to make feature films. He preferred short comedies the same as Stan Laurel did. They, yeah. they were in total agreement on that score, but transitioning away from short subjects was an economic imperative because that was the industry trend. Thanks to, to the curse of double features, cropping shorts, 
right out of theater film programs. Otherwise, the studio would go out of business and everyone was going to be unemployed. Now, I told, I told you, Patrick, that the last time we spoke, that I now say my favorite Laurel and Hardy feature is Blockheads, which is pure slapstick. Randy says the same thing. No romantic subplot or adventure side story or, or music or songs not directly involving Laurel and Hardy exclusively. So while I love Blockheads, you may have seen what I shared on Facebook recently where an exhibitor in 1939 offered feedback on his experience playing Blockheads in his theater for a regular column that you know well, the motion picture Herald column called uh, What the Picture Did for Me. Here's what yeah. he said. I have the quote. Absolutely the weakest picture I ever saw. <laughs> there weren't enough laughs in the entire picture. The worst Laurel and Hardy <laughs> picture ever made. So said M.D. Buxton of the Garden Theater in the state of Kansas. There you go. Minnesota's Judy Garland once famously said, we're not in Kansas anymore, end quote. But wherever we are, the vast general public, then and now, as opposed to the, 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 the tiny subset of folks you're going to see at Sons of the Desert meetings, they want more substance in pictures than 70 minutes of pure slapstick. Now, maybe we don't, but they did. And, and they do. So uh, as Farina declares, answering the phone in our gangs, helping grandma start the argument, you know. So as, as, as for those fans like us, you and me, Patrick, Andy, yeah. all the people that we know who want pure, undiluted Laurel and Hardy and nothing but in one and two real short subjects, it was different. Two yeah. a different commodity, a different product entirely. Because shorts of did not constitute the main or feature attraction at movie theaters. People didn't decide which theater to give their nickels and dimes to based on what the shorts were. No. It was the feature no. film. And so if that's what you want, and we sure do, <laughs> uh, there are only two Laurel and Hardy short subjects where the cast is exclusively these two players constituting pure, undiluted Laurel and Hardy entertainment par excellence. One is Bratz, and the other is Early to Bed. Con concerning which, <clears throat> I have to grab this too. I found these review comments in Exhibitor's Herald for Early to Bed. Quote, lots of roars, December 15, 1928. And... This is a very fine comedy by two of the funniest guys ever on the screen, March 2nd, 1929. Okay, so besides the two critiques, Bob Davis liked Early to Bed. We've covered that. So did the authors William K. Everson and Charles Barr. And I have their rave review comments to quote here for the jury's consideration and due deliberation. Professor Everson calls it, quote, an interesting variation on the usual relationship between Laurel and Hardy. Laurel's retaliatory bursts of vengeance were infrequent, but fairly evenly spaced in about one picture in eight, so that those mm -hmm. who saw all their films, the cumulative effect was even funnier, such sequences acting as a steam valve in the overall saga of Laurel and Hardy. Mm. Early to bed is climaxed by a magnificent sight gag, which curiously they never repeated. 
perhaps because they themselves had borrowed it from an earlier Roach comedy with Mabel Norman. It's one of the most captivating routines they ever did and must have delighted Bunuel, Dolly, and other surrealists, end quote. Now, in fact, that predecessor two-reeler, as you know, I'm sure was Mabel Norman's last film at the studio called Should Men Walk Home from one or two uh, years previously. Uh, Oliver Hardy had a, has a supporting part in that one, while the uh, then not so heavy Eugene Pallet had the corresponding Laurel role, as I recall, at, at least uh, for the fountain sequence. And Crichton Hale had Hardy's uh, seeking refuge in the that uh, yeah. ornate fountain framed by those gargoyles or marble cherubs, whatever they were, that that resembled uh, these two actors uh, spouting somehow spouting never-ending streams of water. So then, Patrick, we have an even another, yet another of your countrymen besides Bill Everson, and that would be Charles Barr, who raised yes. a full four stars out of four, and he rhapsodizes about it as, quote, an extraordinary tour de force. The film consists entirely of their relationship. I find early to bed's last section very moving, like that of a chump at Oxford, which it answers 12 years later. A bar concludes that the film's meaning is, quote, concentrated in Ollie's beautiful, slow smile from the fountain in which he literally affirms his humanity and appeals to Stan for their old friendship. This in itself is a kind of parable and a, and a film, and the film a moral fable. Friendship is more important than power and property, end quote. So that's the lesson. The title card has, has Ollie reaching out to Stan, quote, let's forgive and forget and be pals again. And so they do. What more can you want? And... And in the course of exchanging some emails with yet another, a third distinguished Englishman, <laughs> I happened to ask, because I knew we were going to do this podcast, I asked Kevin Brownlow for his opinion of early debate. Oh, great. On behalf of himself and wife Caroline, Kevin just told me, quote, I can't thank you enough for conjuring up early to bed for us. I first looked up my index card and there was a rave review from when I was younger. I found it a scream. The humor seemed unusually crude. I think WKE gave it a balanced review, end quote, WKE being, of course, Bill Everson. Now, again, I wouldn't want to be the one who would second guess, challenge, and debate the likes of Leo McCary, Stan Laurel, Hal Roach, William K. Everson, Charles Barr, and Kevin Brownlow on the decisions made in constructing this film. Now, if you want to challenge them, that's stuff <laughs> I say, good luck in your plans. <laughs> yes, I don't think I'll be going no, down that road. No, no, nor would I want to argue with them. <laughs> so, so you can say you're not wild about early to bed, but I have every confidence that whatever facts and reasoning they might offer in evidence to the contrary would would be 
highly, yeah. highly persuasive. Now, you, you may have seen, you may have also seen a recent discussion, well, some may have seen this, um, on, on Facebook concerning a chump at Oxford. Now, I joined this exchange in progress. I can't remember whose page it was on, but right. I joined this exchange in progress and happened to ask Bob Greenberg. Uh, so, so I'm going to read this. Um, so I said to Bob Greenberg, how do you, in other words, they're talking about a chump at Oxford. So I said, because I knew we were going to do this podcast, how do you feel about, in some ways, it's antecedent, early to bed? Answered Bob Greenberg, nah, not for me. Then I said, but each film features one character bullying the other. And Laurel's not so playful bullying of Hardy in a chump at Oxford is much more oppressive, even cruel, than anything you see in early to bed, in my opinion. Mm. Bob Greenberg. Yes, but the finale is amazing. And I love when Babe realizes Stan knows him and they hug. That's sweet. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Me, I say, but how is that much different from the ending of early to bed? Bob Greenberg. Not sure. <laughs> I guess there's a reason why Stan is that way to Ollie, whereas Ollie just becomes that way because of money. Mm. In a chump at Oxford, mm. Stan is not Stan when he's mean to babe. I guess yeah. the difference. Yeah. So what I say yeah. in response to that is, but in a chump at Oxford, the mean Stan, as you say, the bullying Stan, the bullying Stan, the one with a superior position in life, is the real, the real Stan in the film. He only became the Stan you like everywhere else in all the other films because of the original bump he got on the head. <laughs> Stan Laurel's real character in the film is a pompous ogre. Bob Greenberg, summoning the line from Dirty Work, offers the final comment. I have nothing to say. <laughs> I've, got to I've got to say, I, I agree with Bob, and I, I, I will answer a couple of those things. I think the difference, funnily enough, I had this, the same, I, I ran a poll in uh, my Blogheads Facebook group the other day, um, and there was three options. I like early to bed, I don't like early to bed, or tis and tisn't. Okay, and the answer so far is two votes for I don't like it, and one of those is mine. <laughs> eight, eight votes for tis and tisn't, um, and 24 votes for I like it. So I am in the minority. Me and Randy are in the minority, and Bob is in the minority as well. I'm surprised. Really I'm, su very surprised. I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm really surprised. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased because what, what I don't like to think is that people don't like one of the films. It, it, nobody likes the film, uh, and that's never going to happen. It's like Atoll K. There's Chris again. He loves it. So there's at least one person that likes that. That's okay. Laurel and Hardy's only horror film. Yes. The fact yeah. that Atoll K exists subtracts from the sum total of, of their reputation. That's my comment yes. about Atoll K. I hope to never see that again. Yes. But what I would, what I would say is, and I, I say I said this in the group uh, a couple of days ago, in Early to Bed, 
sorry, in, in Chump of Oxford, Stan, as you've said, it, it isn't Stan. It's, 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 it's Lord Paddington who's being, and I wouldn't say he's cruel. I'd say he's unkind. I don't think he's being cruel. Whereas with, with Babe in Early to Bed, Babe is being cruel. He's just being cruel for the fun of it and because he's, he's bladdered, you know, because <laughs> he's had a skinful. Um, and, and there's that one key moment in the film, as I say, when he's just tipped that water in and he just, he, his face just changes and it's, and it's cruel. And he says, no, I'm not letting you go. You belong to me. And and he disab- and that is a totally different tone for me, which changes the whole kind of feel of the film. Um, and it's a joy for me when Stan finally sees red and goes and kicks off. Whereas uh, with the chump at Oxford, it, it it feels very different. He's he's he is a pompous, superior, um, entitled uh, idiot. It, you know, Paddington is. He is what he is, and then he, he gets a bump on the head, and he's back to Stan, and they they make up, and and that's a lovely ending. But the early to bed ending, it seems to be going the right way. They they sort of shake and make up, they scratch each other's heads, but then Babes pushes him back in the water again and laughs in his face, causing Stan to cry. And so if they'd have just left that tiny bit out at the end and just made friends, and that was the end of it, again it would feel different. It would end on a high, but it doesn't unfortunately, and um, it, it it always. It's very close to being more acceptable for me, and it's like when it's like when they're wrestling in early to bed. You know, they have that little wrestling session, um, and at the end of it, uh, Babe does this really comical counting as he counts him out, and I love that bit. I think that's a really good bit. But then Stan absolutely breaks his heart over it, um, and they, they don't they don't make up after that either. You know, there's just too many opportunities for them to have smoothed it and, and made them friends again, but they just. They wanted this kind of, I don't know, they wanted to maintain that superior business with Babe, but it just, it just doesn't sit right for me, unfortunately. But I am in the minority, and I will I will fully acknowledge that. I wonder, to, to your point, I wonder if Stan Laurel might have been 100% in agreement with the way Early to Bed plays for the reason of what Hal Roach characterized as his chaplain complex. We, we know that Stan Laurel did not care for Charlie Chaplin as a human being, but as an artist, he said that was yeah. none greater. You can't, no, no one can get close to comparing uh, with, with, with Chaplin's artistry. And I think the reason he says that is because he Chaplin would invest his films with a pathos, and I mm. wonder if L- Laurel in this film thought that that's what he was doing with the way his character was quote unquote mistreated. If that's the way you see it, and I think you do, and Randy does, yeah. uh, that that he wanted to invest that pathos in those scenes because yeah. it would enable him. I mean, he. You see this in in letters, um, the letters from Stan, where once in a while he would make a comment about how he's catching up with Chaplin. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I'm just speculating here. I have no idea, but I wonder if that's what was going through his mind. Where, if we could ask him, did you ob- object to uh, the way? The characters were portrayed. I I wonder if that might be the reason. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's a good question, and it's one thing that 
that also it's a question that that I have over this is um, from from what I can make out from the things that I've read, Stan. I don't say always seemed to be, but certainly as the characters became established, he was very protective over the characters, and he didn't and he uh, he didn't want them to be seen out of uh, out of the derbies and out of the suits. He was reluctant to go into the the comic operators. So I'm I'm just again surprised that he was happy to go down that road that that branched off so so far from that relationship element. If that makes sense. Well, I guess we'll never no. have the answer, but. Um, <laughs> You, you mentioned at the outset how both uh, you and Randy bring certain baggage to this film and that that makes yeah. color <clears throat> your reaction to it. And I, I think I want to add something along the, 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 the same lines. Um, so I, I, don't, I, I don't think... I'm the typical fan of classic films. I think I see old movies through a different prism than most and um, several differences. I think uh, 95% of the film community is on the political left, for example. That's that's their choice. I'm not judging. They see things differently, fine. Um, I'm not, I'm on the right. Also, I, I, I live in two worlds. One is movies and the other is sports. Uh, the, and, and those two interests do, do pretty much do not intersect. So I've always had two distinct groups of friends. I played sports. I follow sports avidly. Um, how many film buffs know much about um, the Lakers, the Dodgers, or your Manchester United? It, it, it's not a mark against anyone who doesn't. Yeah. But we're different in that regard, a, a different orientation, a case of um, cognitive dissonance, I think. I, we, we see things differently, that's all. So yeah. I know yeah. Oliver Hardy played sports and followed sports because I asked Lucille Hardy if he did. I really wanted to get an answer to that. So, <clears throat> so <clears throat> I peppered her with questions about that. So she told me. His favorite baseball team was the same as mine, the Brooklyn and now Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, we have many photos of Hardy playing golf, and we know that while Early to Bed was still in either production or post-production, he won the Hal Roach Studios annual golf tournament. As a young man, we know also that he played a lot of football. And uh, you can see by the way he swings a pickaxe in the Hooskow that he probably knew how to turn on a Dazzy Vance fastball. And, and I, I guarantee Oliver Hardy knew who Dazzy Vance was. I, of course, I never met Oliver Hardy, but I guarantee he would know who Dazzy Vance was, the Dodger pitcher in baseball's Hall of Fame. So, right. <clears throat> apart from the gags, something I really, really like in early to bed is that Hardy looks great he yes he yeah. looks great sharp he's he's trimmed down you can see how active he is um mm. he he looks like an athlete how how he moves so well he's got his hair combed he's well dressed he's on top of the mm. world hopeful aspirational enthusiastic successful he seems to be having a wonderful time making that movie 
Yes. There, there is no other film in his life where Oliver Hardy looks this good and is so yeah. eager, so energetic, lively, spirited. You know, he, he, he dances, he takes falls, he's bursting with mischief, yeah. full of fun and playful energy. Yeah. I like that. Look, for instance, at the sheer athleticism in performing that great gag, racing around the staircase and trying to save that vase from... Oh. How did yeah. Hardy do that? He was mad. Yeah, it's fabulous. He was in great shape. By the 1940s, yeah. however, sadly, away from Hal Roach Studios because of the way his partner had screwed up, the Laurel and Hardy personas um, both looked look tired and frayed at the edges, and they'd slowed down hmm. and changed... And, and more than just the fact that they'd aged, they had changed, and they seemed resigned to their fate. Um, mm. I, I know from talking at length to, to Lois Laurel, and this is also from her, from her mother, <clears throat> Stan Laurel was the architect of all of his own personal and professional problems in life. No one else. You can't blame anyone else but him, the, 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 which is not well known. Um, but as I say, I, I have it from Lois and her mother who, who called Mr. Laurel's bluff and divorced him, which was a blow from which he never recovered, either personally or professionally, and for the rest of his life. As I said, maybe one has to give him a pass because of the um, undiagnosed diabetic con condition that, that he suffered and which precipitated this often erratic, unreasonable behavior that, that got him into trouble with um, drinking and his wives. And so in any case, past a certain point, Hal Roach wasn't going to put up with it any longer and to their mutual disadvantage. And we all lost because of this yeah. situation, not only Hal Roach and Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, but the rest of us as, as, as fans. Hmm. Uh, by, by the 1940s, Laurel... Um, must have realized how seriously he had screwed things up and was just walking through those those terrible yeah. films. Um, I, I've never heard or read anyone theorize about this, but at the same time, during the 1940s, I think Oliver Hardy's characterization had changed too. And I'd wager that the way people in real life responded to him in public through the years... You know, you know, the, the way they'd see him uh, meeting him in stores or, or on the street made him believe that they saw him as this lovable clown who, who wasn't very bright. I have to believe mm. what he took from those interactions and maybe from published film reviews, too, who were not very sophisticated. Yeah. Um, especially the... the what the picture did for me, you, you read, those are not sophisticated reviews. No. So, so he, he must have thought, okay, that's how you see me, a simpleton, a buffoon. That's what you expect. That's what you want. So that's what I will deliver in my performances. That's what I'm getting paid to do. So mm. I, I think it's, it's sad. Sad for the person who was this actor, Oliver Hart. Yeah, I, I think this was a gradual progression, but there's there's no denying the character you see in putting pants on Philip or early to bed is not the same persona you find hmm. 
in the dancing masters. God help us. <laughs> and and which which and which one do you want to identify with? It it, it it wasn't that Hardy appeared weary and played out like Laurel in something like Dancing Masters, but rather that yeah. that he had become childish on screen and a pushover. Yeah. He he no yeah. pushover, uh, no easy mark in putting pants on Philip or or, or early. Yeah. You you almost pity both men in those later films don't you yeah yeah do you want to identify with the oliver hardy of the late silent and early sound films you you see someone who is hopeful trying hard striving at least thinks he knows what he's doing in life or yeah or or, simpleton yeah Yeah. the the timid morbidly obese and sometimes almost pathetic characterization he offers in those later films where he must have concluded uh, off screen well this is what our public expects of me so i'm trapped i'm typecast as this incompetent hopeless clown uh, even this loser so which one do we today identify And, and, and another thing related to this with laurel and hardy at their prime i don't think many of us would be able to choose between them as to who is better or who we hmm. like the best. And we don't have to. Yeah. We see ourselves in Laurel and Hardy, the team, and what they yeah. do as a team and what befalls them as a team. But insofar as which character we identify with, clearly hmm. it's not Laurel. It is Hardy. Laurel, hmm. Laurel is a lost soul. He's, he's like what... Um, Capra said of, of Harry Langdon, as I recall, I think this is right, the, he called in the little elf whose only ally w- was God. And mm-hmm. Laurel's character had Mr. Hardy as his ally, too. Yeah. Where, whereas Hardy, with his camera looks, is appealing to us. Yes. To, yeah. to you and me watching. He's appealing to us over and over for understanding. In, in, in his case, you, you watch him, you can see thought, and, and you agree with it. That, that's yeah. what pulls us in as we're watching yeah. these films. He's drawing us into whatever the pair is seeking to accomplish. It is Mr. Hardy who is trying to connect with us, so he is the one we relate to. So for me, at least, I, I find it much easier to identify with the Babe Hardy I see in Early to Bed and something like Putting Pants on Philip than, than to the one I see in Dancing Masters. Yeah. Now, now yeah. I, I will give you, we shouldn't want to identify with bullies. If, if that's how you see Hardy here, which I do not, but the point I'm trying to make um, is, is that I find it easier to relate to the Oliver Hardy in Early to Bed than the Oliver Hardy of Dancing Masters, which is, uh, painful to endure. <laughs> I, I, I yeah. root for the Oliver Hardy I see in Early to Bed. I can identify with him, where, whereas later I just feel sorry for this man who must have felt yeah. trapped essaying what had become too often a, a pitiable, saddening characterization. And, and Hal Roach was so right when he said, their characters work best when they could project the innocence of children and yeah. that their characters could not grow old and that it wouldn't work when they did. 
and it, it didn't. Mm. I'm sorry. It it for me, it just it didn't work. So you see them in two reelers. They're still young. They yeah. have half their lives ahead of them. They have hope. They aspire to succeed. And the way they keep striving, you can identify with them that somehow they're going to find success in their lives. You and you laugh with them throughout. Yeah. Later in the 40s, if you laugh at all, you laugh at them, which is, I mean, something like air raid wardens. There is no hope for those two poor souls and not even much hope for the two actors who are portraying them. And that's really sad. But I, yeah. I look at Early to Bed and um, the boys, because they're still the boys, then the, the boys yeah. come together in laughter and friendship at the end with renewed hope for their future. And you identify with that. You can believe in that. I think that's the message that Charles Barr is trying to convey. Yeah. Friendship transcends any consideration of power and money. That's the point of the film. And it's uplifting. And all through the picture, as I say, there's an athletic Oliver Hardy radiating nothing but, to my mind, positive energy, trying to have a great time. So yeah. I can gravitate to that. Now, I, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm explaining this the way I, I, I need to, but I, I've tried anyway. I, I I guess I would say finally, e even if you don't see things that way or or share that view, there's no denying what Bill Everson hails as that magnificent uh, gargoyle water fountain sequence, and and if you even after all that, if you don't care for this short, I I, I would ask, I wonder, um, have you seen this comedy with and? audience because that can make for a completely different viewing experience like i think you're i think you're dead right richard i think it would be totally different yeah like, yeah you know, i think you're probably I, right i told you the last time we talked about my experience in in paris seeing wrong again in front of an audience of uh yes. little, little, yeah. little kids and they taught me so much about how great these films are so so with some of these things in mind i would only ask to please give the film um uh, another chance and and so 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 there you are i would say that's that's my case and i quoted uh bar and and yes, yes. Brownlow. i quoted what they had to say prosecuting their case for early to bed as as i put my case to bed uh and after all this time uh not so early and i in other words <laughs> i would say <laughs> Uh, and in fact, in the very words of Oliver Hardy in the aforementioned Bonnie Scotland, Ecipto factotum. <laughs> yes. Well, you put a very, very good case together, Richard. A very, very strong case. And I, I mean, who, as I say, who am I to argue against all of those uh, those wonderful people that have gone before? I think it's. Um, I think it is all about what what I and Randy and, and I'm sure other people uh, bring to it, which which is is not the fault of the picture. Uh, and yes, with a with an audience, I think I would probably be laughing along with it, you know, because I think because of the baggage, um, watching it on your own on a screen, it feels very different anyway. So it's um, yeah, I, I will certainly. In fact, when I watched it the last couple of times, it was a lot. Um, it was a lot better of an experience than I thought it was going to be. And I think maybe because I was a bit more prepared for it. Um, I just want to just 
pick you up on one of the things you just mentioned about the the, the character and just a very interesting um, take about um, Babe's betrayal and the reasons that he may have you know gone down that road of playing the simpleton for want of a better word did so do you you don't think that was kind of a dick diktat from the studios then because i remember like when we look at the um the trailer for nothing but trouble and that is all just about look at these bumbling blockheads you know and really really beating them down to two just simpletons so do you do you, do you think that was more of a, a character development on their part on sal and babe's part rather than right this is how we want you to play no i don't i think it's just that the view of those Fox people, as Randy likes to say, <laughs> and the, the people at MGM, they saw Oliver Hardy's character the same way people on the street did. I think that they just reflected the same opinion. I, I don't think it was anything that was imposed on Oliver Hardy. I think this was a gradual de decline that happened over the years as a consequence of interacting with people and Hardy himself seeing the way people on the street, people that he knew or film fans and, and studio executives alike reacted to him. That's how, I, that's how I think that his character changed. In other words, mm, that's really interesting. He, yeah. he, he just, he wanted to be successful. I think he reasoned that based on the reaction that he got from everyone he encountered, that that's how people saw him. That's what they liked. That's what they wanted. That's what he was being paid to deliver. And so that's what he did. But that certainly is not the character you see in mm. the, the silent Laurel and Hardys. Mm. No, you're absolutely right. I totally agree with that. And and also, you see that same kind of character in, uh, or oh, I see you hear it in, um, you know, the radio comedies. The um, is it the Dumber Plumbers and um, the the Slater's Poultry Market? Mm -hmm. They're just complete buffoons. You know, you, it, it's it's cringeworthy sometimes. I don't I don't enjoy those at all. Um, and I also don't think for for as good as an actor that as Babe was, and he was brilliant. He's dreadful on the radio. I don't think his acting is any good at all. On the, he's, he's just reading off a script. I don't think he was in it, you know, at all. Stan, Stan gets over he, his, his acting is better, I think, than Artie's in, in, the, uh, in the radio shows. Well, they, they, were, but, they were visual comedians. How was that, yeah. that going to work on the radio? <laughs> that's very that's a good point yes i should yeah i should have thought of that one yeah but um well that that was fascinating that was really fascinating thank you so much for that richard um i i will i will i'm going to watch it again and i'm going to cast off all um all baggage this time and i'm sure i'll enjoy well, it better I'm try sure. and gather an audience yeah 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 that's the thing to do they they Definitely. will tell you what works and what doesn't because in a darkened theater, on a big screen, without commercial interruption, mm. that's where the magic happens. Something intangible happens, and 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 you see the the brilliance of the, those people who crafted these gags, and that they all work. The again, you'll find laughter in in scenes that you didn't realize were funny before. Yes, yeah, 
Unless you're watching Clark and McCullough, of course. Well, <laughs> well, you you have to watch them over and over again. Really, I, I love Clark and McCullough, and, and so does Leonard. We were astonished. We were shocked at what happened. Here he thought this That's was great. this was going to be the gigantic, climactic, over-the-top finish to his program, and the thing just died, laid an egg. He should have gone with Laurel and Hardy. Leonard, well, what was he thinking? I don't know. I don't... <laughs> if, you, if you can get him to do one of these, maybe he will tell you. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'd love to have him on. I would we, love to have him on. We just don't... I mean, well, I, I guess you either... Again, you first have to decide who are these people and do I like them? And when you made yeah. that decision... Because, as yeah. you know, when you watch a Laurel and Hardy film, you're preconditioned. You know what they're going to do. You know they're going to yeah. be funny. Uh, yeah. The expectations, you're laughing at, at your memory of having enjoyed these films before. You want to laugh. Yeah. But yeah. you just don't know what to expect if, if you're watching people that you've never seen before. I think also, as well, society today you know and I, I guess myself included if you're not into it in 10 minutes you just give up because we're so sweet you know i can do this and i can have it right now at my disposal at my fingertips whereas you know when i first started watching laurel and hardy there was nothing else on the tv you sat you sat and watched it with your family and you got to know them because there was nothing else to do or nothing else to watch whereas now if i'm not into um, bob and ray in the, in the first 10 minutes i think well i'll go and do something else now i'll just go switch something else on or you know there's there's so much more um demands or pulls on your time so they probably you know they probably don't get the same um opportunity as as, as previous as they would have done previously, but uh, I will, I'll also try Bob and Ray again. I promise. Well, don't give up. Yes, I and would. maybe maybe Randy can convince you better than than I can as to the value of of their comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll give it a go, Richard. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful. Um, I'm I'm really glad I got you on today because I, I I do see early to bed in a different light. So um, thank you for that. That's what I wanted actually. I wanted to have something else to have in mind when I watched it next time, and I'll certainly do that. So thank you for that. You're very welcome, and I thank you because I I know you're serious about these films, which is why why uh, I I was happy to to talk to you about early to bed. Uh, we we always wonder where is the next i mean the whole driving force behind everything i did in my career was to get these films successfully into the next generation well where who is going to constitute the next generation it only takes a few people to make an enormous difference and i mentioned uh in our discussion today people like Kevin Brownlow and Bill Everson, if those two people never been born, how would our lives be different? They'd be very different. Okay, so where is the next Kevin Brownlow, the next David Shepard, the next Bill Everson, the next Jack McCabe? Um, I always want to encourage anyone who has a serious interest in these films because that's the way they will survive. What, what, what? What did I, I mean, it wasn't my money, but I wound up, as I said before, spending $4 million restoring and preserving 
on a photochemical basis, these films, what did we do that for? You, you want to have the films available for audiences in the future to discover. Correct. But if, but yeah. if people don't discover, if we don't, if we don't get these films in front of uh, young eyeballs, who is going to constitute the next generation? And, 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 and if we don't do that successfully, these films are going to die, which is. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, a very good I, point. I want them to live and go on forever. And I know Randy feels the same way. And the nice thing is as well, I mean, I can speak from experience, you know, my, my two boys, um, six years old and eight years old, they absolutely adore Laurel and Hardy. And, and yet they are, you know, they're on YouTube all the time watching all kinds of nonsense, you know, Minecraft, this, that and the other and God knows what else. But if, if they, they, they sometimes ask to watch Laurel and Hardy. So it, they are still relevant. They are still appealing to the kids of well, today. I, I, always, uh, I always say I believe in the product. If you get these films in front of an audience anywhere in this world, any age, yeah. they will deliver the goods. They will work. People will love them. Yeah, I yeah. believe yeah. in the product. Quite right. Absolutely right. And uh, and and that's you know that's one of the objectives of, of the podcast is to try and uh, and and inform existing fans, but also just get us onto a new platform. Well, again, you know, that, that's that, what I that's what I say. I recognize that you're serious about this, so I want to encourage uh, people, younger people, and of course, at this point, almost everyone is younger than I am, and I want to encourage people, <laughs> young people, uh, who, who are serious about these films, because that's how they were, yeah. will survive, with advocates like, yeah. Uh, like yourself. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely right. We will do. We'll do our best. We do our best. And uh, and over over Christmas, I had uh, I had the boys on TikTok with uh, with the advent calendar that I was doing. So uh, we we are we're trying to push the boundaries. We're trying to get them into new places. So yeah, oh. if we if we all do what we can, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get the boys into the next generation. No problem. Okay. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, and, uh, and hopefully it won't be the last time. I'm so intrigued to see what else you've got in your files. You keep saying, I've been looking in the file, and I found this, and you come out with some fabulous bit of information from a, a lost conversation. So, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I can't wait to speak to you again at some point and find out what else uh, you've got lurking in those, in those folders. <laughs> so do I. I mean, a lot of times I open up these folders, and I'm surprised myself. <laughs> or, 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 or I go through stills and I turn the still over and on the back side are notes that I had written after discussing the still photo with someone who is in the photo. And, and if uh -huh. I hadn't made those notes, what I had written yeah. down, what I had been told would be lost forever because, because yeah. I would have until I looked at the back of the still and saw what I had written down to record what I had been told to save my life. I couldn't have recalled that information. Now that, that, that astonishes me. The, the very last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you go is <clears throat> when, when I was a, uh, a teenager and someone in, in, in my early twenties, it concerned me a, bothered me. I couldn't understand why when I would ask these Hal Roach Studios alumni or alumni of, uh, of B Westerns, uh, I, I couldn't understand why they couldn't give me the information that I wanted or why they, why they couldn't remember or why what they told me 
was wrong when, when I knew it was wrong. But now when I'm their age, I, I, I can relate to the fact that uh, when you're exposed to so much information and it happened so long ago, your yeah. memory gets a little hazy. Of course. Of course it does. You don't even have to be old, Richard, <laughs> to be honest. Hey. <laughs> My memory's dreadful. Hey. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you, Richard. Oh. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. Take care of yourself. Look after yourself, and I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. And that brings our look at early to bed to a close. I hope you enjoyed both discussions, firstly with Randy Scretvet, and then today with Richard. We are so lucky as fans of Laurel and Hardy to have these two gentlemen so willing to impart their knowledge to us. Without their lifelong dedication, our understanding of the comedy world of the Hal Roach Studios and of Stan and Babe would be unfathomably poorer. So we all owe them one huge debt of thanks, uh, and so indeed, thank you to today's guest, Richard Bann, for being such a wonderful and informative guest. Huge thanks to the Bohunks Orchestra for the fabulous music. Links to purchase their CDs can be found in the show notes as usual. And last but not least, this show would be nothing without you. So thank you for joining me once again. Thank you for your continued support and for your friendship. And until next time, it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye from him. Goodbye. And it's a very goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.